Uh, hello, everyone. Uh, welcome back to the Critical Care Scenarios podcast. This is Brandon Odo, uh, back here with Brian Bowling. Hey. And we're excited to bring you uh, episode number two. Um, I think episode one went all right. Uh, pretty well received. I think people are kind of picking up what we're putting down here. Um, and hopefully we can keep the ball rolling. I'm a, a little troubled because I, I feel like Brian's going to do something bad to me this time. But uh, I guess we'll see. <laughs> yeah, well, we'll, we'll try, I'll try not to be too uh, too bad to you. But uh, it is going to be a little bit of a trickier case, maybe. So I guess that's life. Um, cool. All right. Well, what do you what do you have? What is happening in this great, scary, big world? All right. So we're going to start the case. You're, of course, on call for the ICU. You get a call from the ED. They've got a 65-year-old female down there that they'd like you to see. So this lady came in. She's got about a one-week history of cough, fever, chills. Uh, They tell you right now she's setting about 90% on six liters. She's mildly tachycardic, and her BP is a little on the low side, 95 over 40, uh, which gives you a map of 58. Uh, So far, they've pan-cultured her, uh, and they're volume resuscitating her per appropriate sepsis guidelines. Uh, but they'd like you to admit her to the ICU. Okay. All right. So kind of a general infectious or septic sound yeah. picture, a little hypoxic, maybe borderline or a little hypotensive. Yeah. All right. Um, any labs worth noting? Uh, nothing yet. So you get down to Seer uh, and you find a acutely ill appearing lady. Uh, by the time you get down there, she's now sat in, or she's now uh, a little more tachycardic heart. It's 105 appears to be normal sinus on the monitor or sinus tach, I guess on the monitor. She's setting okay. 94%, uh, but they've moved her up from a cannula to a non rebreather. Uh, okay. and her pressure now is 90 over 41, which gives you a map of 57. That's despite fluid resuscitation. So she's been getting, we'll just assume for the sake of discussion, she's been getting appropriate fluid resuscitation sure okay however you define that okay and you say she looks a little ill she Um, does anything else worth noting on exam uh no she just says i you know i just feel i feel really bad i've just been feeling kind of run down and crappy for the last week or so um nothing really going on in her life out of the ordinary um she just she just feels sick and she says i feel sicker uh even than when i first came into the emergency room okay this started five-ish days ago, you said? Yeah, thereabouts. Okay. Before that, she was well, nothing going on. Correct. She has tip- typical, I will say, what I would consider a typical Kentucky healthy uh, <laughs> heart history, uh, History, right? She has hypertension, hyperlipidemia. Uh, she's got a touch of diabetes, um, you know, the usual. Okay. But no other striking medical history? No. Nothing, cardiac history? Nothing respiratory. huge to speak of. Okay. Any medication she's taken? Uh, she takes uh, an antihypertensive. She doesn't remember the name. Um, and she takes uh, an oral antihyperglycemic. Uh, she thinks maybe metformin, um, but that's really about it. Okay. Any allergies? None that she's aware of. Okay. Um, any traveling lately? Any unusual exposures? Anyone around here but sick? Uh, no, not really. Uh, her grandson who's in daycare has had, um, some bronchitis, uh, that he came over to the house the other day, but other than that, nothing really, nothing really major going on. Okay. What time of year is it? Uh, it's winter. Okay. So, so about, about know, this time of year. Yeah. Flu could be floating around. Sure. That's always out there. Sure. All right. Um, and then 
Just on exam now, um, can I hear anything in her lungs or in her heart? She just sounds uh, diminished in the bases, um, mild ronchi kind of throughout. Heart sounds fine, uh, but she now she's complaining of more and more shortness of breath. She can't get her breath. Um, she's working hard to breathe at this point, um, and she's a little more tachycardic. Okay. All right, so like we were saying, some sort of infection looks like and given that she is hypoxic and a little labored through breathing, I think we can certainly look at you know, the respiratory tract, although who knows at this point. Um, I think we could probably shoot a quick chest x-ray, which might be helpful, and while they maybe put her on some BiPAP. Okay. Uh, so you put her on BiPAP. Um, it's helping somewhat, but she's still, she's, she looks more ill. Um, she's, she's beginning to get into what you would consider to be distress. Sure. Is that x-ray going to happen? Or? Uh, yeah, so they shoot the x-ray, and you sort of have just sort of hazy consolidation, um, just opacities kind of all over the place. Nothing that really strikes you as um, like a pneumonia or isolated pneumonia, at least. But kind of diffuse, Yeah, just sort of diffuse, patchy opacities. Can I take a quick look at her heart with the ultrasound? Uh, sure. So you put the ultrasound on her heart, and what you find is she has some akinesis of her LV apex, mm-hmm. um, but she appears to have normal contraction of the mid and basilar uh, LV walls. Interesting. Yeah. Um, and the RV looks okay? The RV looks, uh, yeah, it looks reasonable. Okay. Not great, but it, it's not strained, super strained or anything. Mm-hmm. So while you're talking, uh, the nurse notices that she has what appears to be ST elevation on the monitor. Now, yeah. we know how accurate that can be. Sure. So maybe they can try to grab a 12 lead EKG. Um, can I just uh, take a quick look at the lungs as well with the ultrasound? Sure. sure. Seen B-lines? Uh, yeah, B-lines. Nothing that you wouldn't expect. So Yeah, diffusely like you would say, mode. though, yeah. kind of all over. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. Only with the RX. Okay. And the EKG would be nice, I think. Okay. Anything else you want to get? Well, I think we could send a full set of labs. You know, we could send okay. a CBC and a chemistry. Troponins would be helpful. Lactate. Okay. Um, cultures, undoubtedly. Um, what else? A, a, a BNP, I suppose. Although I'm never entirely sure what to do with those. Sure. Um, what else? Um, and then I, I think the kind of important points here are there's seems like there is some new heart failure without really a clear precipitate. Um, and I think we have to, you know, always assume the worst so we can assume uh, an underlying ischemic cause, although there's probably any number of other possibilities, infectious, for instance, like a myocarditis um, and things like that. Uh, but I think the EKG would be helpful. Yeah. All right. So you get the EKG and you've got, got it there in front of you and we'll put this on the website for folks to look at because uh, it's a little hard to get a full picture from just a description, but you're looking at the EKG, you see, um, ST elevation in leads one, two, three, uh, AVF and most of the precordial leads. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, um, a sinus rhythm for whatever that's worth sinus tack. Mm-hmm. It's regular, but like you said, there is this widespread ST elevation. And I think the most important thing to note with that is that it's really across what I would call multiple anatomic regions as far as the coronary perfusion. I mean, it's across the entirety of the precordial leads, but also inferior leads, be you know, lead two and AVF, even lead uh, three here, uh, lead one. I mean, essentially every lead you have, which is, you know, something with 
a somewhat slimmer differential, right? The people describe pericarditis with having this diffuse ST elevation, but um, I, I think to me pericarditis is kind of a, an undiagnosis. That's like a diagnosis of exclusion because it's not sure. usually a huge deal, and it's actually not that common. So, right. and the other troublesome thing is, you know, multi uh, vessel uh, occlusions, or people talk about a, a very proximal LAD or a, a left main disease. And they say if you look at AVR, it can be a little helpful. I know here that AVR has depression in it, which I think is a little more reassuring than elevation. Um, but at the end of the day, I think we have to still treat this as ischemic until we rule it out, you know, with these gross elevations and this clinical picture. Sure. Um, so I think probably we can get cardiology involved okay. and give them a buzz. If there's a process here for, um, you know, activating the cath lab, we should probably go ahead with that. And... Um, in the meantime, I think we have to support her clinically, though, and she's more hypoxic and a little hypotensive as well. So I think we're probably moving towards having to innovate her. Okay. And I think the question is, how are we going to do that safely? Because as she is, um, I'm not you know, thrilled with how resuscitated she is. Um, I'm, I know she's been on BiPAP, and I, I kind of like that she's tolerating that positive pressure. Um but I, I feel like if I can get her blood pressure a little stronger in the meantime, I'd be a little happier with it. So I think we can give her some fluid. I know you said she's already gotten some. And if it, I feel like that's reasonable, then it may be adequate. Um, the ultrasound may be helpful. We can kind of compare her cardiac function and maybe her IVC. Um, and then maybe a little bit of presser. And I wouldn't mind doing a little bit of something peripherally. How, how would you say, I know you said there was this kind of um, apical hypokinesis. Can you give me a general sense for the overall function, though? I mean, overall, is it just a very severely depressed EF, or is it kind of not too bad? So overall, um, if, if you're just going to guess, probably 20 to 30% EF. Yeah. And, I mean, is she, does she have strong pulses? Is she cool peripherally? Um, is she pink? She's pink. Um, her, yeah. pul- her pulses are weak but palpable. Um, Okay, so I, I, I mean, I, I guess the question in a case like this is: Is she hypotensive because of cardiogenic shock? Because it seems like there is at least some pump failure, or is it, you know, the more typical distributive picture with, with an infection, meaning mm-hmm. sepsis, with this kind of, you know, concurrent cardiogenic failure? Um, so I think we could probably start with just a something like norepinephrine to give her a little bit of support on the pressure and a little bit of inotropy, and I wouldn't mind running that peripherally, give okay. her a decent pressure, and then think about intubating her. Okay. So you start a little bit of norepi, and she actually gets a little more hypotensive. Mm. And she's looking she's looking much worse now. Well, that's interesting. Um, and how much fluid has she gotten now? Um, let's say she's gotten three liters. Now, what, what I'm wondering is, um, this kind of picture on the echo would be consistent with like a stress cardiomyopathy, a takasubo, mm-hmm. um, which... In a lot of ways, I would you know just tend to treat like heart failure, but it is sort of said, and I don't know if the best practices for managing this are super well defined. Certainly not by me, but um, you know there is th- thought that that particular disease process is related to kind of catecholamine excess. Um, that's why you have this sort of reasonable hypokinesis. Um, so I wonder if we give her more catechols, it may you know be hurting rather than helping that side. <laughs> um, that's definitely more in the realm of uh, random academic thoughts that I'd be having. But um, what we could try, I suppose, is a non-catechol, you know, presser. Okay. Like vasopressin. Okay. Um, it's not the first thing I would think about because I feel like she needs a little bit of inotropy. But I don't, 
I mean, I don't know what else we could throw at me. There's like milrinone, but it's not really something I usually go to in a acutely ill patient. You sure. Know, you don't know what's going to do blood pressure and so on. Um, we could try a little vaso. Okay. So you put some vaso on her and it stabilizes things. Her blood pressure improves somewhat. She's still mildly hypotensive, uh, but she is doing better than uh, that she was on the norepi. Yeah. Right. So right. you got so a couple of labs about back. Intubating her. Yeah. Okay. You want to intubate her? Well, yeah. What? Well, what? <laughs> tell me about your labs. Okay. So you have a couple of labs back. Her uh, CBC appears fine. Uh, her BMP is really unremarkable. Uh, her troponin is 1.05 nanograms per milliliter, which is a little elevated, but not horribly. Uh, her pro BNP is 10,000, which is pretty significantly elevate, elevated. Uh, and that's all that's back so far. Okay. Um, as cardiology made an appearance? Yeah, so they just showed up. Uh, they're looking at everything. They think she's having a STEMI. Uh, and think that we should probably take her to the cath lab if you feel like she's stable enough. Well, I think she needs an airway, uh, okay. and then perhaps. <laughs> um, yeah, so why don't we think about intubating her, and then they can work on fixing the problem. Okay. All right, so you intubate her, everything goes reasonably smoothly, um, and they take her up to the cath lab. So okay. you, she's in the cath lab, and they shoot her coronaries, and they are clean. She does not have any sign of obstruction. She does not have any sign of plaque uh, or thrombus in her coronaries. Okay. So is she going to come back to us in the ICU? Yeah, so she comes back to you in the ICU. Still intubated. Um, she's stable now. Uh, her pressure's, you know, not bad. Still on some vasopressin? She's still on a smidge of vasopressin. And, and that's it as far as pressors? That's it so far, yeah. Okay. Um, can we take another look at her heart, see what it's looking like now? Sure. So you put the probe back on. Do you want to just do it yourself or you want to get a formal echo? Yeah, I mean, I'll certainly order one, but okay. um, I'm not going to wait for it. Okay, sure. Uh, so you put the probe on and you see sort of the same picture that you saw before. Sort of this uh, kind of global hypokinesis now, uh, but really pronounced left ventricular apical akinesis. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll try to find, I'll try to put an echo on the website too as well so people can see what it is we're talking about. Okay. Did cardiology have anything to add as far as what they think is going on, or they're more in the ruling out business? Yeah, they're they're really said. Well, she's not having a STEMI. All right. Well, thanks, guys. Yeah. Um, so I think we're back where we were. You know, she's hemodynamically uh, a little more stable, but certainly still with an insult. And I don't know how much of it is from this cardiogenic side versus you know a distributive shock. Um, I've li- I like that she you know, seem to appreciate the, the vaso a little bit. Um, but maybe we can start thinking about trying to support her, you know, inotropically a little more. Okay. Um, I, I realistically, I would probably again, try something like norepinephrine again, um, or like a low dose epi. Um, but if we really were worried about it, we could try, I think, milrinone if we have a, a more stable blood pressure. My only concern with having vaso and milrinone as our, our two hemodynamic agents is I, neither of them to me is super titratable. So if we add on some milrinone and maybe her pressure dips and I'm already running vaso at you know, a flat rate like 0.04 or something, what do I do then? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think I would at least have some other presser there hanging like leave a fed or whatever. Uh, but I would try milrinone. Okay. 0.25 or like just a nice gentle dose to start. Sure. Anything else that you want to do before you add milrinone? Well, let's see. So, um, we have a vaso running for a little bit of vasoconstriction. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And the rest of our labs, I, I don't know if anything else came back that was interesting. No, nothing so far. Yeah, okay. Um, we have her on the vent. How is she looking there? Uh, she looks pretty good. So you've got her on pretty minimal support. Is she awake? Uh, she is awake. Um, she's following commands. Um, uh-huh. But you have, you have her lightly sedated. And you say sort of minimal support, so she's on an FiO2 of like 30, 40 or something. Yeah, we'll say she's on, well. you know, 40% FiO2, five a peep, um, you know, appropriate tidal volumes for, say, yeah. six to eight per kilo. Have we had another x-ray since we intubated her? Second x-ray follow-up looks fine. Tube's in good position. Uh, her lungs look essentially the same. Okay. Well, I think we should certainly be treating her as a septic patient. Okay. Uh, so I, I think they sent cultures already. She should mm-hmm. be on antibiotics, certainly. Okay. I suppose we could call this, um, I mean, I would go broad, but I suppose we can call it a, perhaps an ammonia or really kind of an unclear picture. Sure. Uh, if she's from the community, I would I would consider something like um, uh, maybe a quinolone and um, ceftriaxone. Um, or I mean, we could certainly go a little bigger with something like... Cefepime or Piperacillin Tazobactam. Um, and we should be looking for other sources as well. I mean, I don't know if they sent a, a urinalysis. Um, and um, I, I assume there's nothing else really in her. No hardware, no lines or devices no. or wounds that we can appreciate. No. So, I, I mean, I, I think we should, we have to look mostly at those lungs as a source. I know we sent a sputum. Is there anything in the gram stain? Uh, gram stain comes back with uh, gram negative rods. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. Well, I would definitely, um, you know, select something with, with some good gram negative coverage. So I might do something like the, um, uh, or Zosin, but, um, you know, if she's not requiring a whole lot of support, I, I don't know if she necessarily needs to stay on the vent forever. Um, okay. I wouldn't expedite her right this second, but I think we can do a little experimentation with her human dynamics and try to optimize them. Okay. So as we're talking, uh, as we're talking, the nurse calls, comes and gets you and says, um, pressure is falling. Uh, her map is down to 55 now. She is still waking up, but she appears more, appears more ill. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see. Is she making urine? She's making some, but not very much. Okay. Well, like and it's 10 an hour or something like yeah, that. Yeah, and it's pretty concentrated yeah. looking. Yeah. Um, does she have a lactate? I assume we... Uh, we've not sent a lactate, but we can. Uh, we sent a gas earlier, so we'll add it onto the gas. So it'll come back mm-hmm. pretty quick. Uh, our lactate is three. And again, sort of on exam, um, how is her skin looking, her pulses, that sort she's, of thing? She's pale. Um, her pulses yeah. are weak. Sort of cool in the extremities? Yes. So, I mean, I, I'm kind of starting to feel like we're leading more in that cardiogenic direction. Okay. Um, so we did we start that milrinone? Uh, we can. So we start some milrinone. Okay. Um, her blood pressure continues to fall. I, th- I mean, I think if it's coming down, especially as I do that, I would, um, maybe start with the norepinephrine again. Okay. Just to try to maintain a reasonable map of whatever, 65. Okay. So, uh, put the norepinephrine on and the map comes up, uh, but she's still looking kind of pale and shocky. Yeah. And the other, you know, the other possibility here with this kind of mixed, unclear shock picture is should we consider something like uh, floating a swan, which you know, okay. is a little out of fashion these days. Sure. But I, I think there's at least, you know, conceptually certain patients who appreciate it. Um, or, um, I mean, there's other kind of less invasive ways, but I, even if we have some, you know, something like a, a non-invasive cardiac output monitor, I, I don't really know in a 
patient like this how helpful it would be. I feel like it's really more for managing from fluids and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, and I think here the question is more sort of a matter of flow versus um, SVR. Okay. Um, so that's a possibility. I will say that in my own practice, I really don't do a lot of swans. So it's probably not the first or second or third thing I would think of, but um, it may be in that on the shelf somewhere. But I think sure. we could maybe start with just empirically titrating some inotropes and see if we can get her clinically looking like she's less in failure. Okay. So you want to do that before you put the swan in or you want to go ahead and put the swan I, I in? I think or? I probably would. Yeah. Maybe we could start with the milrinone, okay. support her pressure with the norepinephrine. Um, we, I, you know, I could start maybe like 0.25-ish of milrinone, maybe come up to you know, 0.375, something like that. Okay. Um, if she's on that for a bit and I, I'm not, doesn't seem like she's responding all that well, maybe we can think about the swan, but we could use the echo as well. I mean, I'd like sure. to see a little bit better contractility. Yeah, that's fine. So uh, you go up on the milrinone um, and her pressure unsurprisingly falls, um, but her color looks a little bit better. She pulses are a little stronger, um, but now her map is trending down. So, um, like how much norepinephrine are we on now? Um, so you're on 0.06. Okay. Well, that's not bad. Per, and then, kilo. um, how, how's her heart looking now on an echo? Uh, so heart looks like it's got better contractility or better, better pumping, um, with the uh, addition of the milrinone. Um, still that same sort of stress cardiomyopathy picture. Now I don't, um... I think what I would probably try is more of the same. And there's a, the other thing we can throw at it would be epinephrine. But if we're trying to do sort of a catecholamine sparing approach here, which I, I guess is what we're doing, right. <laughs> then um, I, we, maybe we could focus on the milrinone using the norepinephrine just for support. Um, so I might do that unless we start to get to a point where we're on just some really high doses of things and they don't seem to be working all that well. And then I think the next move might be epi. Okay. All right, so you find yourself going up and down on the milrinone and the norepi in this sort of dance. When you in increase one, you get um, poor, you get de decreased blood pressure, but better cardiac output, let's say, for lack of a better term, since we don't have anything to really measure that and quantify it. Uh, and then the opposite. So when you go up on the norepinephrine, your pressure gets better, uh, but your contraction and, and forward flow seems to worsen. Yeah. Uh, and I, I think what would probably be uh, sound would be to be involving the cardiology team here as well okay. um, to see if they have anything to add, uh, whether from the pharmacologic side or whether they think there's any mechanical support that would be appropriate here. Um, a balloon pump or something that will actually provide some cardiac output for her. Sure. Which, I mean, I you could say that her sort of heart failure was not too, too terrible initially, but it is clearly kind of labile and not responding super well to you know, medical therapy. Um, so it might be something to think about. I don't know if she needs kind of full support with something like ECMO, but if they would want to do something like an impella or something that provides some partial support, um, that would be maybe in their, in their uh, court there. Sure. So cardiology comes in and uh, they like the way you're thinking. Uh, they agree with you. She's not right, quite ready for ECMO, but uh, they Maybe a balloon pump would benefit her. Uh, so they put a balloon pump in, and that sort of starts to stabilize things. Um, they can go up on the milrinone uh, and the norepinephrine and sort of find a happy medium for everything. It's where you get uh, a good cardiac output as well as uh, a good um, blood pressure. Okay. So she's looking better. And then we'll fast forward a little bit, uh, a couple of days. You're 
coming down on your inotropic and uh, vasopressor support. Um, she looks better. Her white count's trending down. You had talked about extubating her at some point. Did you? Do you feel like she's appropriate for that, or do you want to? You know, if if her respiratory status continues to look really good and it, nothing has really developed into something like a more you know florid pneumonia or something, I think it would really be at the mercy of her hemodynamics. You know, acknowledging that if we take her off the vent and remove that positive pressure, it's probably going to uh, worsen her afterload a little and maybe more of a challenge to her heart. So I'd like to see her doing really well from that perspective first. Okay. Uh, so let's say we are now um, a few days out. Uh, we'll, we'll say ICU day four, five. Uh, she's off her pressors altogether. Cardiology feels like it's appropriate to wean and remove the balloon pump. Um, and she looks much more stable now. Color's good. She's making good urine again. All her labs are kind of normalizing. And she's off all of her pressors and things. She's off all pressors and still maintaining a good um, a good pressure. Yeah. I mean, I th- yeah, I think she's probably in that kind of extubation land. Um, what we could do if we were really worried still would be like a T-piece trial. Occasionally I'll do that when I, I really kind of unsure if that positive pressure is helping someone with a borderline heart with the, you know, awareness that there's no real evidence for that. But sure. um, I mean, it might be something we could try just pop her off the vent for a few minutes and make sure she tolerates that. But yeah, I mean, if she's looking generally well, I think it's probably time to try. Okay. Um, so you extubate her. You're going to extubate her to regular cannula or do you want to give her some more support, step her down slower? Yeah, I think I really think it depends how well she's doing. It, okay. If we look with the ultrasound, does she still seem to have some uh, systolic dysfunction, or she really looks normal now? So when you echo her heart now, her LV function looks normal. Her EF um, is around 50 to 55%, um, and it looks like more of a normal function. Uh, mm-hmm. You don't have that apical akinesis anymore. I think we could probably extubate her like anybody else. Just okay. give her a little bit of cannula or something if she needs. But if somebody felt like she, they wanted to go to BiPAP for an hour or two, I wouldn't argue about that. Sure. Okay. Okay. So you extubate her. Um, she does well. And then um, the next day, she's doing so well that you decide to transfer her out of the ICU. Um, she goes to the floor for a few days and then home. She follows up with cardiology a few months later, has a perfectly normal echo. Splendid. Yeah. So, um, some talking points, I guess. Let's let's kind of talk about the case. So, you um, picked up pretty quick, I think, that this looked like a stress cardiomyopathy. I think uh, it's that that characteristic appearance on echo. I mean, it's so nice these days that we have you know bedside ultrasound so easily available. Because without that, with just the story. Um, I think it could easily have been something else like a, a myocarditis or just like a, a sepsis induced, you know, cardiac dysfunction. I mean, indeed, it could still be all those things. Um, it, there's just kind of that more classic appearance um, on ultrasound. Not that all of the Takasuba patients necessarily have that either, I don't think. Right. So I think you're right. I think that is key. So a lot of us are familiar with the Takasuba cardiomyopathy and the the broken heart syndrome, and we sort of associate it with the um, the psychological or emotional stress, right? The patient, the classic is the elderly woman whose husband just died, and she has she comes in with this looking like an MI, but is really uh, is really this Takasubo cardiomyopathy brought on by the emotional stress. 
But actually, there's a what we, they call a secondary Takasubo, which is brought on by the physical stress associated with critical illness uh, or surgery, particularly things like sepsis, ARDS, um, and neuroemergencies. We say I see this. Um, I've seen probably more Takasubo in the neuro ICU than I did when I worked in the cardiac ICU. Um, High grade subarachnoid hemorrhages will will get this, you know, not infrequently. Um, now, do you find that um, people will call that Takasubo or call it something else? So it sort of depends. A lot of times we'll just call it stress cardiomyopathy, but in the literature, yeah. it is uh, it is still referred to as Takasubo, um, and yeah. it's sort of all the same presentation, right? right. Um, it, pe- the people look a little different, so the sort of that classic, um, pr- what they call primary Takasubo tend to be much more weighted towards female. It's something like nine to one uh, female to male ratio. They tend to be in that 60 to 75 year age range. Um, and they uh, tend to be white to the tune of two to one of all other ethnicities and races. The secondary though is much more balanced. Some studies will even have it at one to one male to female, um, a much broader age range, 40 to 80 is kind of the most common. Although there have been cases even in, in pediatric patients of developing this. Um, you mentioned the sort of characteristic, uh, characteristic echo findings. And that's what we sort of always think about, right? Another term for Takasubo is this apical ballooning syndrome right. uh, because of that apical uh, ballooning, that dyskinesis of the apex of the LV on echo. But that's not um, that's not always present either. So in, in this sort of secondary, that ballooning may be only present in about 50% of the cases, whereas it's shows up in about 80 to 90% of that kind of classic Takasubo picture. Um, and there are also examples in the literature of people with this stress cardiomyopathy secondary to physical stress, like critical illness, where you will have basilar dysfunction, but normal apical function uh, or mid mid ventricular dysfunction. Yeah, I think, I've heard them say reverse Takasubo. Yeah. Uh, I think the key when you look at an echo uh, in a patient like this, to dis- to differentiate it from what we would call regional wall motion abnormality that would be associated with ischemia, is to look at the pattern of coronary di- artery distribution, right? So if you look at a typical patient who's having an MI, you're going to see very characteristic dysfunction, right? The areas of the ventricular wall that are supplied by the coronary artery that's being blocked are the ones that'll be dysfunctional. Whereas in something like a Takasubo, you may get, for example, the septum, you may get uh, distal septal dysfunction, but not proximal and mid-septal dysfunction. And all that's typically supplied by the same coronary artery. Right. Now, th- that being said, though, I, I think that you still have to treat the majority of these patients as if they're having a STEMI. Yeah, I would agree with you. I think, um, if nothing else, the odds of missing a potentially fatal STEMI are too great to ignore it and, and presume that it's Takasubo. Right. Because I, mean, I think these can, they can, these can have STEMI looking EKG findings. They can look like a STEMI clinically. They can have, uh, you know, elevated troponins, although perhaps not in every case. Uh, and, and when they are, I think not often, not super high, but I, I think the way you really diagnose this is you go to the cath lab and they have clean coronaries. You don't look at them and say, well, this looks like Takasubo. Right. So, and if you look the, there's actually diagnostic criteria for, um, for this, the Mayo Clinic criteria, 
And one of them is that there is no coronary obstruction, right? So technically to call it Takasubo, you have to go to the cath lab because you have to rule out that it's not, uh, that it's not a STEMI. The other thing you want to rule out is it's not a pheo, right? Pheochromocytoma can sometimes give you a very similar picture. Oh, interesting. Uh, and you mentioned earlier the catecholamine, um, excess catecholamine surge as a causative factor for this. Uh, and that, that is sort of the leading theory. There's not a real good explanation yet for why this happens, uh, but that's sort of one of the leading theories. And that's why you see when you put on things like norepinephrine or even epinephrine, uh, especially you're going to get, things are going to get worse because of that excess catecholamine. Now you're just dumping more catecholamines into the patient. Right. I think I've heard about people trying things like beta blockade, but obviously as someone who's, you know, also in shock, I have a right. hard time imagining that going over well. Right. So beta blockers are actually the the kind of gold standard to treat this because it does counteract the catecholamines. But um, you're right. If there's somebody in shock, then that's potentially problematic, right? So maybe more of these kind of non-catecholamine-based things or mechanical support? Yeah. So the the... The vasopressors and agents of choice would be inotropic support with milrinone uh, is a great one. Uh, Levosimendin is actually a, a really, really good drug for this. It's not available in the United States for reasons that I still haven't really been able to find out. But uh, if you talk to our colleagues in um, Australia, particularly, and in Europe, they use this uh, quite a bit. Um, it's a positive inotrope. It's a calcium sensitizer. So basically it increases the effects of, of calcium on the heart muscle. So you get more bang for your buck. Um, and as far as vasopressors, uh, vasopressin or phenylephrine uh, is another one that'll, that'll both give you peripheral vasoconstriction without uh, that catecholamine response. And then of course, yeah, I would just be a little wary of phenylephrine and someone who looks like they have a cardiogenic shock. Cause I don't really want to increase their afterload without right. giving them any inotropy. Right. Uh, and then we mentioned the balloon pump, mechanical support, balloon pump, Impella, and ECMO are all are all options as well. Right. And because these are people who are good candidates for it, right? They, yeah. they get better in usually days, right? And you just yeah. have to bridge them through it. Yeah. And that's very typical of these people. Even the sickest, uh, shockiest patient going through this, the survival is somewhere around 70% if it's managed well. Um, they, these patients typically do very well. So it is kind of, I mean, myocarditis, it may be a good comparison, same sort of deal, but those patients sometimes, you know, may take months to recover, whereas these are more like days. So really right. kind of a classic critical care candidate. Yeah, exactly. The last point I'll make too is about anticoagulation in these patients. So because of this apical dysfunction, they're at high risk for getting clots uh, forming in the LV. And so you really want to make sure that these people are getting uh, prophylactic heparin uh, if they're able to, if there's no other reason. Now, sometimes you have people, like I said, I mentioned uh, high-grade subarachnoid hemorrhages uh, earlier. You want to be very cautious anticoagulating them. But these, uh, if they have no other contraindications for bleeding, then um, heparin, including a heparin drip, uh, is a good idea to start on these folks and eventually bridge them to warfarin if the if you actually see a, a thrombus in the LV on the echo. Mm. So you would consider full anticoagulation just prophylactically, same as you would like an AFib patient? Yeah, well, so depending. So if, if you see an LV thrombus on the echo or if you have a patient who's 
EF is less than 35%, they're at high risk for the development of these things. And so typically you would start anticoagulation if there's no other contraindications. And those folks would probably get bridged over to warfarin um, until the akinesis resolves or three months out uh, and and need to probably follow up with uh, cardiology. Interesting. All right. Anything else to say about Takasubo? I don't think so. It's a it's a much more common case than you might think. Uh, if you look in the literature, there's actually studies that suggest it's way underdiagnosed, um, and that uh, that when we go looking for it, we find it a lot more often than we would have otherwise thought. Yeah. I mean, I think this really classic case, like we saw, it maybe is not super common, but probably more you know subclinical cases that you may or may not notice in other settings are probably quite common. And maybe we're seeing more now, now that more people are doing ultrasounds. Yeah. I think, like I said, more, we're, we're looking for it more, uh, and, and seeing it. All right, Brian. Well, that was a good time. Let me just mop my brow uh, <laughs> and, uh, we'll do it again soon. All right. <laughs> <laughs>